we haven't addressed the larger societal issues of white supremacy we, and the way it is socialized into all of us, right? Because it's not just the white people's problem, quite honestly. I mean, they have to be the ones to solve it, if I'm being honest, because it was their thing. <laughs> but we all are breathing that air. We're all drinking, uh, drinking that Kool-Aid. Welcome to Curated Conversations, a podcast discussing issues related to equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. I'm your host, Shaliza Jamal, founder of Curated Leadership, an organization that fosters partnerships with leadership teams, employees, and individuals to develop their knowledge in the areas of equity, diversity, and inclusion to build inclusive communities. I'm joined today with my guest, Dr. Jamel Adkins-Sharif, who is an assistant professor of professional practice at Rutgers University at the Graduate School of Education. Jamel holds an EdD in urban education, leadership, and policy studies from the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Using critical and decolonial lenses, his research explores racial and social justice, leadership, and coloniality in schools. He also serves as the Boston director for Escolta School Research and Design, a nonprofit engaging in culturally sustaining school transformation. Jamel has had a successful career as a special education teacher of history and mathematics in New York City and was founding principal of both an elementary charter and district school in Massachusetts. Welcome, Jamel. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me, Shaliza. You're very welcome. So we have so much to chat about, and I know that we'll have a lot of ground to cover in this hour or so, but really looking forward to digging in. And I think my first question really is about the past two years and what we've been experiencing. It's been a challenging two years. We've been really faced by a double pandemic. I know folks have been hearing this a lot, both that of racial injustice and the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm wondering in your experiences, both as working in higher education, working with public schools and in your own research and professional life, what have been the greatest challenges, do you think, for school leaders in this past two years? I think there have been several uh, really big challenges that school leaders have faced. I think one of them has been an ongoing concern about the overall health and well-being of their students' populations. Uh, the COVID-19 has, you know, is wrought havoc on, on the world. And it's, it's been really hard on students um, who have seen school as a safe space, as a place to, to, to um, get nourishment academically and otherwise, as a place to be, um, as a place of belonging. And so remote learning, schools opening and closing, um, those have had really adverse effects on students and has resulted in some students disengaging from schools or, or students engaging in coping mechanisms that, that have been harmful to them, or students taking up uh, increased responsibilities to support their families during the time of the pandemic. And so what all that has meant is that students are, are, are primarily focused on, on their home environment and well-being. They're primarily focused on their, their own immediate concerns, and school becomes secondary in that environment. And, and, and so and what also, that also means is that stu students' academic progress becomes delayed or even, or even um, regresses. And so that's been hard because school leaders have had to try to find solutions to that while they're also grappling with their own challenges, you know, as human beings in, 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 in the same ways that the COVID pandemic 
has wrought havoc on the lives of young people, it's also done so to the adults in those spaces, the, um, the caregiver communities. And so it's it's been it's been a huge it's been a huge blow to people. And then when you layer on top of that, the racial uh, violence and and um, the anti-blackness and the just just the 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 rise of white supremacy and white nationalism and, and hatred and the way that's played out, not only on the streets, but in the political discourse, in the in the media, all of that is also having a toll on people psychologically and emotionally. It's just a very difficult thing for anyone to 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 deal with. So I would say that that the social and emotional well-being of of all the humans that school leaders are responsible for has been the greatest challenge, um, and it's been compounded by both the pandemic and 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 the um, the challenges of living in white supremacist uh, societies. Yeah, and you mentioned this idea of sort of seeking solutions to what the students are experiencing, and you mentioned, you know, not only the academic burden, but the social emotional burden. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, because in my experience, I found working in a large school board, that school leaders were mostly reactive in this Mm -hmm. situation, rather than responsive. What did you see on the front lines uh, from your context, or hear about even? Yeah, so I, I will say up, up front that I didn't. I actually have not been on the front lines in the schools during the pandemic. I I left the principalship in 2019, just before the pandemic, uh, and so I've been working with Ascolta uh, since 2020. So in a sense, I've been a little uh, one step removed. Ascolta works with school teams, so we're 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 one step removed from actually being on the ground. So I don't want to claim to speak for the day-to-day experience of teachers and, and school leaders today. Um, because as challenging as it was when I was a principal, I can only imagine like the magnitudes more that it is now. Um, but what I have heard is that, yes, initially folks were reactive. And I think because they were depending on their districts, they were depending on state leadership, they were depending on, 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 on leadership from above to kind of provide support and answers. And I think we were slow to do that, and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in the, in the United States context, but I think this applies more broadly. We were slow to do that for the same reasons that we've been slow to address any inequity in schools even before the pandemic, right? So we already had a problem with students of color and students um, from low socioeconomic backgrounds having access to internet and access to digital devices, right? And so. Now it was made even more stark and more clear. We already had ineffective relationships with caregivers and we're not doing a sufficient job providing, um, you know, the kind of supports and resources that communities needed, like like support to have caregivers present in school or wellness supports that are needed beyond what's available in schools. And so what the, what the pandemic did globally really was expose already in ex- existing inequalities and existing inequities. And so... Eventually, the governments got a handle on things like, well, we're going to make sure that there are hotspots and digital devices and one-to-one devices in all kids' hands, right? And then teachers and schools had to quickly pivot to remote learning. And a lot of people were not that good at it, quite honestly. We were all trying to learn something. You know, people were all trying to learn something new. And so there was there was that. And plus, it was just the the trauma, the shock of of everything. And so I think that it was not the way our system is set up. It is not at all um, surprising that we were slow to respond. 
I think the schools, though, I think if, if we if we zoom into the level of the school and its relationship and the teachers and this relationship to the students, they tried to be very responsive very early on in terms of doing, um, and I'm speaking about schools I worked with in Boston, community outreach, going out in the communities to try to locate kids. Okay, no one's answering the phone, no one's responding to texts. Let's get in our cars and drive to kids' homes and try to find out what's happening and how we could lend support. And then, you know, support took different forms for different com communities. But again, I think schools and teachers were responsive in that some kids, some kids didn't have um, transportation funds to get back and forth to work. Uh, some people had food and housing insecurity. The lockdown forced some students or, or young people to be in, in home situations that were unsafe and they didn't have a way, you know, they didn't have any backup plan. So there were all these things that I found that school leaders and, and, and educators and, and community-based organizations were very responsive to from the beginning because their work is always about sustaining communities. But unfortunately, our policymakers and district and state leadership, they were slow in the draw. And I think for the same reasons, like I said before, because it, it, it's always been slow when it comes to addressing the needs of, of, of communities that have been historically disserviced. Yeah, I, I, that totally resonates with me because I know that right before the pandemic hit, I would say, my union was actually on strike with mm. Our union were also the personal support workers, so the social workers, the um, psychologists, mm -hmm. the youth, child, work, child and youth workers, speech and language, all of that, they were all on strike with us for these reasons. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's quite ironic that they were needed so much more and they still are needed. And so I'm hoping that that shift continues where we really, uh, as, a, in, as a school system, as a government, as a society, really invest in those social support systems. I think that's so important. But I also think it's ironic because, you know, to your point, we were starting to roll out this idea of giving students access to devices, but there was a, you know, a treacherous application process. Then all of a sudden, pandemic hits, and we've got the budget now to give everybody yes. Chromebooks. Uh -huh. And that was always my thing. You know, Chromebooks are about $300. I always said, instead of giving people agendas, people, students pay student activity fees, even if it's $50, I think they should get a Chromebook from kindergarten to grade 12, whatever mm -hmm. the system is. And now folks are actually thinking about that. So I feel like all the innovation that's been on the ground and being led by folks within the system are being being used now. And I hope that these lessons aren't lost right. uh, because because I do agree with you. There's There's been a focus and an exposure, right? An exposure, I should say, on those inequities. And I think there are a level of uh, things that are in place right now, including supports, that need to stay. We yes. can't go back Right. to status quo in September mm -hmm. or next September because mm -hmm. we're going to fall apart. Right. And you already hear people trying to return to some sense of the past or, or what they're calling, you know, returning to normal. We heard in the, at, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was an understanding that, you know, standardized testing <laughs> in that moment was not really going to give you any really useful results. Um, it's all, it's, it's, Quite honestly, been been a questionable measure of the total the of the total students' uh, capacity and proficiency anyway, but they were they were fine with putting that on hold, recognizing its limitations. But now people are clamoring, oh, we need we need to get the standardized tests back because we need to be able to measure, and 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 also I would say so. I think that that's that that's problematic because it means that we're trying to we're not learning from the experience, right and 
So, I mean, there are lots of ways in which it was a moment to try to make radical change. And that that moment seemed seems really brief because it feels like there is a there's a retreat and a desire to kind of um, go back to something more familiar. But what's more familiar wasn't working for so many young people in the first place. So. Yeah, that's that's unfortunate. Absolutely. And I think, you know, speaking of all of all of this work that needs to shift and some of it that needs to to stay, you know, as your work as an educator and an administrator working with youth who are commonly referred to as troublesome or Mm -hmm. challenging, behavioral, at risk in my in my experience, we Mm -hmm. We're calling them at-risk youth. I prefer to call them ap- opportunity youth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's my preference. But in your opinion, what are some of the greatest barriers before COVID, during COVID, uh, in the future that these opportunity youth face in reaching their full potential? Right, right. I really, I really like that term, opportunity youth. We, we, some of us here use the term at promise as opposed to at risk, but definitely, I like that. The reframing is important because. Part of the problem is, as far as you want to know, one of the greatest barriers, adult mindsets about the young people we serve is one of the greatest barriers, right? So the language we use to describe them, the measures we use to determine whether or not they've they've met academic success, that's all determined by adults. And we have to be honest that we are adults who've been socialized in a society that labels, that creates hierarchy, and that has long been, been ineffective in providing quality education for for at promise youth, right? I mean, who we're talking? I mean, if we're just honest, who are we talking about? We're talking about um, students from working class and and economically strapped homes. We're talking about students of color. We're talking about students who may have um, who ha- who may have learning dis- disabilities or who may be differently abled. And we're also talking about students who are um, English learners. Um, or, 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 or multi, you know, students who have multiple languages and are needing to learn language, the language of instruction as English. And so those populations, our schools have never really served well because they've always been deficit framed in terms of they, they present problems that need to be fixed rather than a school system that needs to become more inclusive and expansive to incorporate their uniqueness and address whatever supports they need. So number one barrier is adult mindsets, right? And those are mindsets that are informed by the societies that we live in. So we live in white supremacist societies that hierarchically rank who's more valuable than other than, than who else. And so we just we just reproduce that in schools. Schools, mm-hmm. re- schools are, are, are microcosms of society and reproducers of society. And so you're going to see the same thing that you see outside of the school on some level inside the building. So we live in societies that marginalize the disabled, that marginalize people who, whose, whose first language is not English, right? People of color. And so, of, not, I shouldn't say of course, but unfortunately, that also takes place in schools. And it's beliefs about these, these young people's capacity, right? Beliefs about the level of investment of their home communities in their education. All of that gets in the way of an adult being able to have the kind of relationship with a student that you can help them reach their highest potential. Mm -hmm. I think the other great barrier are structural barriers, right? The work I do with alternative schools in in Boston, and alternative schools are schools, they're usually small high schools that have overaged and under-accredited youth. Many of them are 
at risk of dropping out of school. And so it's for many of them, it's the last stop before that happens. But one of the challenges is that all of the metrics of success are, are, are fashioned on the model of a traditional high school, right? So a student in this school is already coming in likely, for example, who has not graduated, has not graduated high school and four years have passed, right? So four-year graduation rate is a measure, an indicator of success, right? But if I'm a kid in an alternative school, almost by definition, I'm not graduating in four years. So credit accumulation, the seat time, right? Literally, how many hours are you sitting in a seat in school equaling your credit, whether you get credit for that course and get enough credits to get a high school diploma versus the push from below, which is, can a student demonstrate proficiency and mastery in certain skills and competencies either in school or in the workplace, right? Because ultimately that's what we're preparing them for anyway. So though, but when those schools have to do their end of year reports, right? Or attendance, this whole notion of attendance, like being able to fail because of attendance, right? Well, students, many of these students, attendance has, their attendance issues are the result of some of these other factors we've been discussing. And particularly because they tend to be um, older students, oftentimes they're working, oftentimes they're either partly, um, they're partly supporting their, their, their parents' home or they're, they're, they're supporting their own home and family. Some of these students have, have children. And so none of that is taken into account when one is to ask those types of schools, are you successful, right? It's how many of your students graduated within four years? What's your attendance rate? What's your discipline, right? So that's what I mean by structure. That isn't something that students can change, right? Mm-hmm. That's the reality that they're that they're placed in. And so it, those are district and state policies that say that those high schools have to be measured in the same way traditional high schools are, or even grading policies is another part of that. So mindset, adult mindsets that are predicated on some of the oppressive um, things that are endemic in our society are, are one huge barrier and the other are the, the structural barriers that are inherent in schools that aren't serving traditional students well and are certainly negatively impacting students um, who we would call um, opportunity or at promise students. Thank you, Jamal. And it's so interesting because I also work in that context. Most of my education or most of my career as an educator was in alternative schooling. Mm. And I, I found the same problems with the structure because they said that they were trying to accelerate students to get credits fast. So each class, instead of being 75 or 90 minutes, was two hours mm-hmm. and or, or two hours and 20. I can't even remember now. But I thought, well, we're working with students who maybe weren't successful in the traditional model. Mm-hmm. They're working. They have children. Maybe they have learning disabilities. Maybe they're English language learners. Mm-hmm. But we're making them sit for two hours? Right, right. How is that model that didn't work for them in the in the regular quote-unquote school going to work for yeah. them here? And to your point, we're grading them in all these other ways. So I know my colleagues and I had done a project with uh, hybrid learning to see if it was more successful. And we found that students who were already successful and doing well were successful with the hybrid model of online learning. And we find that students who were not successful were more successful in the hybrid model because they didn't have to come to school. They could do it on their own online. But people were so afraid of doing that until the pandemic again, right? Everything goes. Right, right. Absolutely. So are we going to learn those lessons? Because for me, we were expecting students to fit into a box 
but mm-hmm. calling it an alternative school. But what was alternative about it, except for the fact that they were 18 to 21 year olds? Right. And I think some teachers were doing a really great job of teaching through a culturally uh, relevant lens, mm-hmm. through a culturally responsive lens, using technology, using all these things to to really uh, capture and engage students. But a lot of folks weren't, you know, and right, so I, right. I really resonate with your point about the structures and how we push back on that. Right. The second thing is, you know, my personal work is really about shifting mindsets for, mm-hmm. for adults. And I work, you know, with bias training and anti-racism training, but year after year, and this is the same statistics I've seen in Canada and the US through my research, we still see achievement gaps. We still see over uh, expulsions and suspensions uh, for Black and Indigenous youth across North America. Mm-hmm. We're seeing, still seeing the same uh, data points come through, you know. And you know, my research is on teacher education programs and what do we need to do to sort of work towards unpacking the anti-racism that manifests and continues to manifest in these mindsets. And so I'm wondering if if you have any ideas of how do we actually shift these mindsets when teachers are socialized and having that white supremacy culture that's part of our systems and structures in our society, how do we actually shift the mindsets of adults who are working day in and day out with Black, Indigenous, students of color at the intersections of equity and access? Mm-hmm. In your yep. opinion, of course, if we had the answer, we'd change right. the whole we're world. We're getting ready to solve thoughts. the world's problems right here. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but but that is a that is a that's the million dollar question. But I think there are ways to begin to do it, and it has to. I mean, if you're so, it depends on. So, if we're talking about like teacher preparation programs or things like that, there. So my work at Rutgers um, at Rutgers Grad School of Ed, I work with um, pre-service teachers, um, and so they take the coursework. So they Rutgers does a great job of um, really really exposing the coursework on anti-racism and abolitionist teaching, um, and that's really great. The problem is they go into school districts that that that's a foreign language, or people got a one and done PD on it, and no, no nothing beyond that. So that gap between theory and practice gets started literally at that moment before they even get to be a, you know, a professional teacher with their first class that's their own. So there has to be a way in the, in the ed prep experience where students are constantly having to apply, you know, in, in, in bite-sized ways, have to apply those ideas Ideas like um, being reflective and, and 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 reflecting, getting to l- become comfortable, um, in engaging with communities that are different from your own, uh, challenging some of the notions that they adopted and embraced in their own upbringing, in their own K twelve experience, because the, our our teaching force in the United States is what seventy percent middle-class white women. And so that means there's a particular cultural framework that the majority of the teachers who are teaching what is now majority non-white students for the past seven, eight years, the incoming kindergarten class in the United States has been majority non-white. And so we are we are fast approaching the point where, at least for young people, people of color will be the majority. And so you have majority white middle-class females teaching with a cultural frame that is informed by their own coming upbringing, which again, it's been filled with messages about the communities they come from and the potential that their students have. 
And, and so if I grew up in a community where we were trained to fear and loathe black, pe- black and brown people, well, what do I do when those black and brown kids are sitting in my class? And then they and they, and what do I do when I have to meet their parents, right? So that that we haven't addressed the larger societal issues of white supremacy we, and the way it is socialized into all of us, right? Because it's not just the white people's problem, quite honestly. I mean, they have to be the ones to solve it, if I'm being honest, because it was their thing. <laughs> but we all are breathing that air. We're all drinking uh, drinking that Kool Aid. So so we have to, you know, I have worked in settings where there have been people of color who've had deficit thinking about young people who have been afraid of black and brown boys as they get big, you know, become middle school and high schoolers. When I was a teacher, when I was a teacher in Brooklyn, um, in, in a really tough neighborhood in East New York, Brooklyn, I had internalized those ideas about that community based on, you know, some real violence that was occurring, but it was easy to kind of have that obscure the nuances and the fact that that wasn't the whole story and that wasn't everybody's story, right? So until we address the societal issues of white supremacy and we're having a hard time right now, the United States is in a real backlash about anything having to do with questioning systemic inequality, institutional racism, white supremacy, politicians and political pundits and the far right and white supremacists are seizing this moment to, to, um, to really push back against against exactly what we're saying needs to happen. So but so until we can until we can create a situation where teachers can shed that, right? Then we're always going to just be um patch patching and putting band-aids on the problem. So I don't, you know, it starts with with but it does start with training. It starts with reflection. It starts with people being willing to question their own um how they came in. So when I when I teach my coursework, we focus on Part of what we focus on is the students reflecting, journaling, and analyzing their own K-12 experience. Because if they don't understand how they came to be as young people getting ready to teach somebody else's young person, then they're, they're not going to do well by them. You know, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a professor, a sister, uh, Dr. Celie Ruiz, who talks, calls it the archaeology of self. And this notion that you've got to excavate and, 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 and figure you out before you are in a position to really be your best self with young people or with especially somebody else's young people, right? So, so we've got a lot of, 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 of spirit work to do, a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of internal work to do. And at the same time, it's more than just that because you can do all of that and then put those people in systems that perpetuate this and, and you're still back to square one. So we've got to blow up these disciplinary systems. Right. We've got to blow. We've got to expand how we think about hiring in schools. We've got to we've got to take the risk of, OK, the politicians are going to be mad, but we're going to talk about um, institutional racism. And we're going to talk about um, the ways in which we can create um, pathways for opportunity for even for young people today are being are being blocked. Right. We, we, we're just going to do those things. And then and then and I think the other thing is another barrier to success. For, for young people that, that we, can, we can address is we've got to put young people more in the driver's seat, right? Like they know their lived experience. And especially as they get older, we've got to, we've got to like, I'm, I'm reflecting on the fact that I can walk into a middle class, upper middle class white suburb somewhere in, in the United States, particularly if it's outside of a, a wealthy urban center. And 
what I would see in a school there would be so radically different from the schools that I went to or the schools where I've taught or where I've worked or where I've led. And, and part of what you see is a real difference is the agency of the young people. In those upper middle class spaces, which are primarily white, those kids walk around like they have agency. They engage adults like, like they are important and central, right? That has to be so in our schools, but not because they're gonna come out and reproduce hierarchy, but because we're gonna finally tap into their inherent genius, right? And and we're gonna we're gonna lift our that empowerment. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's so self-empowerment. Think, yeah. So I think that that is that's that's the charge. That is a charge for us. Yeah, absolutely. And you've just shed so many so much light on these like pearls of wisdom. Thank you for dropping all these pearls here because really I think the the main things that I'm hearing is like that mindset and that system and structures piece. I think that responds to this idea of why opportunity youth are not perhaps fulfilling their true potential or what the, the barrier is. And a lot of the stuff that you have said also speaks to why there is still is an achievement gap mm-hmm. between uh, white students and students of color. And a lot of this, like you said, is systemic and a, a lot of reasons. And you've given a lot of suggestions, too, of how we can move further. I wanted to dig a little deeper, and you did share some of this already, but in your current role working with teacher candidates or prospective teachers, uh, as we might call them, what are some of the beliefs and ideas that you think educators need to unlearn when it comes to the process of schooling? Because mm-hmm. I know, you know, I agree with you. I see um, some dissonance between what teacher candidates are learning in the program and then when they go into the school, right? So that's kind of the first question I have in terms of what do they need to unlearn in terms of the process of schooling? Mm-hmm. And then also, what is the role of faculties of education to support, create, and ignite that change? Yeah, yeah. So, well, if I could take a step back to the first part of your question, I think that what needs to be unlearned or perhaps learned, I, I think what needs to be unlearned is this benign notion of the purpose of education, right? We don't, we don't often think of the educational space as a, as, a, as a battleground, right? As a space where ideas and power are contested. Right, we think, oh, this is where you teach little kids how to read and write, and they sing and all that, right? And so there's a way we can look at schools that seems very benign and very like, oh, this is just this great place, right? However, if we look at the historical record, especially with respect to law and policy around education, policymakers and lawmakers knew that schools were sites to reproduce their society. And so therefore, schools were sites to contest power. Schools were sites to reproduce inequality and hierarchy, right? So I think one of the first things that needs to be learned, because I don't really think people know that to unlearn, you know, know anything else. So they need to unlearn the benign notions of schooling and see schooling for what it is. And I mean, some of this gets lost in the idea that, well, you know, public education in the United States, you know, was designed to kind of like, Create, you know, create a, a, an American citizen and, you know, but it was also tied to the Industrial Revolution in creating a certain kind of worker, right? And where, it, where, it, where, where this is most um, pernicious is with respect to education policy towards people of color. So education policy towards people of color has almost always, if you look at the historical record, been about dominating, deculturalizing, and, and, and marginalizing our people. 
right? It doesn't matter which group you pick. The United States, both even before it was the United States, from the colonial era, right? We can go back to 1740. The United States, before it was the United States, the colony, the English colony of South Carolina had on its books laws making it a felony for Black people to be able to write. Because the understanding was that enslaved Africans who could write would have agency to be able to escape enslavement, right? So early on, laws and policies and treatment of people of color in education has been all about domination and marginalization. So it's really not, a, if, if one takes the long view, it's really not surprising that we still are grappling with these issues. Because from my perspective, the, the education system is doing what it's designed to do. It's kind of absurd to say, well, wow, we've had education in the country for centuries and we still can't seem to get this right with black kids and brown kids. At some point, you have to like really question whether 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 that's the issue or is it it's actually doing what it's supposed to do. Continue to perpetuate inequality. Right. That to me makes more sense, especially when one looks at actual laws and policies that that I mean. It, it's amazing. Like I, I teach a course on this and it's very explicit. Like, for example, in 1903, the commissioner of the, you know, once the United States had colonized the island of Puerto Rico, the commissioner of, of the education system basically said it'll be le more efficient and less costly for us to continue our colonization campaign in the schools than, than in the battlefield. Right. And so begins the process of Deculturalizing Puerto Ricans of their mm -hmm. of their Latino identity, of forcing them to speak English, of 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 firing mass firings of of Puerto Rican teachers and bringing in American teachers to indoctrinate Puerto Rican mm -hmm. children to accept America as their as their dominator, right? So like, I'm not talking like new like you know I'm not I'm not I'm not drawing inferences. I'm actually telling you what the laws said, right? And even after Brown versus a Board of Education, right? We never deal. We've never dealt with the funding formulas. We've never dealt with the. Well, we are recently now dealing with issues around disproportionate um, special education placement for children of color, particularly black boys. Right. So there's just this long history of either direct or indirect policies and practices that have been designed to marginalize. So the first thing is they need to learn that and unlearn any benign notions they had about the purpose of education. And then I think they need to um, they need to be able to, I think the other thing that happens is a lot of new teachers, um, they're very they're very enthusiastic, they wanna do all kinds of things, but they, they, they get beaten into submission because of the challenges of working in schools, along with taking their directions from the more seasoned teachers, coming into a culture that already has its a school culture that already has its own expectations. And so many of them, that 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 enterprising, innovative, maybe even rebellious spirit gets kind of um, pacified, right? And so we need to find ways to keep that in, that youthful enthusiasm and that desire to, to kind of change the world that so many of them come in with, but it gets railroaded, right? So I, I, I think, and I think part of that is because um, it seems like an insurmountable problem, and a lot of people just come in and just just do what they need to do to, to to make it, right? So, I mean, I think again, it's so much more than just what can we do with teachers or what can we do in the grad school, you know, a, a ed preparation program. It's like how do we change our societies? And I know it has to start somewhere, um, but it's this, these are really societal issues um, 
that have to be addressed. Absolutely. And, you know, um, when we think about Indigenous uh, or Indian residential schools here in mm. Canada, they happened in the States as well. Mm-hmm. We have to think about, you know, one of my colleagues we talk about, it wasn't actually a school. Right. It was right. actually a oppressive structure, like, because that mm-hmm. is not what schooling is. Or is it what schooling is, mm-hmm. you know? And it yeah. also reminds me of Bell Hooks, because in her book, Teaching to Transgress, she talks about this idea post-Brown versus uh, education, the Board of Education. And she writes about this idea that when schools were segregated, she talks about schooling actually, you know, being around Black folks was, schooling was about liberation and yes. freedom. Yes, it was. And then she says, when we came together, there was all also this, this structure of colonization of, you know, uh, you know, stifling freedom and stifling thought. And, you know, she talks about education as this practice of freedom mm-hmm. that was really stifled. And I think that idea has sort of stuck with us for some for yes. some reason, yes. you know, yes. that schooling is not about liberation, but it's about uh, actually control. Right. You know, right. And, and, and that's so, something that needs to be unlearned. Well, so, yes, I would totally agree with you. I'm glad you raised that because it's so interesting because that is true. Despite the fact that under segregation, um, black schools got, you know, did not get adequate funding and then obviously were in um, really dilapidated structures, but they had the support of the community and it was a community looking out for its own. And so we produced excellence in spite of the horrific conditions and the neglect and no expectation that that would happen, right? Similarly, in the historically black colleges and universities, right? Where, where it went from, there is no available opportunity for higher education for, for most black people to kind of those, those land grant institutions that happened after the civil war and then the rise of those historically black colleges. But that's who produced our middle class and our intelligentsia. And so it's really sad now that post Brown Right. You had right after Brown, the firing of thousands of black teachers, the demotion or firing of thousands of black leaders because they weren't going to when you want to put a black man principal in charge of white women in 1950s. That just wasn't going to happen. And, and, and so they fired all of those people and just replaced them with, with, with whites. And so we lost a lot because we were able to, for better or worse, we were able to kind of. Um, provide for our for our youth. And so that's not there. And similarly, the historically black colleges continue to to, to struggle financially and 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 to be able to kind of keep themselves. And now they're facing all these um, attacks from white supremacists and bomb threats and things like that. But there's been a constant attack on our in educational institutions. Initially it was you don't have any educational institutions. Then it was like, okay, well We'll, we'll, we'll segregate you over there and kind of ignore you and do whatever you do. And now that what the result is, yeah, if you leave us alone, we can produce greatness. And so now the other way to attack it is to just, well, we're going to drain it. We're going to just, you know, um, we're just going to like, I remember in the 80s and 90s, many of the historically black colleges were in danger of going into bankruptcy and, 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 and foreclosure. Many of them had begun to be absorbed into the, 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 the state university systems, which were white run and, and, and white led. So again, there is there has been a constant attack on our education, our educators, and our educational experience. And I am, I am convinced that it's intentional. 
and that it's about maintaining the status quo. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. And, you know, when I think about even the Afrocentric schools that have been piloted here or the indigenous schools, mm-hmm. uh, there is a pushback because to your point about our at opportunity or at promise students, they're still having to operate under that systemic oppressive structure of schooling, even if they create the Afrocentric or the indigenous centered schools. So that's just something to think about as well is that we're, we're trying to break free, but there's always this control and this, this, this power that needs to be lifted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to see if we could switch gears and talk about the other stakeholders here. So we've talked mm-hmm, about a bit mm-hmm. about students and about teachers, but in your work in community engagement, you've written about the importance of bringing families and communities and parents of marginalized students uh, to the decision-making process. And I was wondering if you could speak more about this. Um, In particular, in what ways has the partnership between schools, students and families help support their academic behavioral Mm -hmm. uh, challenges and maybe how this work bridges the gap between parents and teachers and builds that community? Right, right. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. It, it, It is, it's, it's a key missing piece, right, is the, is the caregivers. Again, what we were just talking about earlier, it wasn't just the Black educators, but it was those Black educators lived in the community, so they were part of the community. And so, you know, the principal was your, was your neighbor or the, or the teacher was, was, was knew your mom, or, you know, things like that. So that, that, that was law, like, you know, there, there are arguments made about, about whether or not uh, Brown versus Board was a good idea, right? Because as much as we needed to obviously open up the society and end overt uh, ca- an overt caste system, there were a lot of things lost that communities had used to fortify themselves and build, lift themselves up. And so, caregivers are a centerpiece of that. And so, when I I I, I wrote that when I was running an alternative high school program, um, the article about um, parents and bringing them back into the um, into the process because that w- it was so obvious to, to to me and the people I work with that that they're you know that they're not involved they're like they drop their kids off they hope for the best and the only time for to hear from the, the the school is when their kids are doing something wrong and and that that that's a horrible relationship and and with and with students in alternative schools or in New York they call them transfer schools um they're their 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 parents oftentimes have completely lost faith in the school system because i mean i i I have two children i could not imagine being told year after year after year after year after year that my child is a problem and that something's wrong with them right um so so Parents are right, and these parents have had those experiences when they were attending schools. I, I had parents who told me that they used to go to the same school that their kid went to, and the worst thing you can hear from them, they say nothing's changed, right? That is like the worst. It's like, really? Wow, 20-something years ago and nothing's changed. And that, that that's, that's a sad testament. But what they mean is it's still not a welcoming place. We're still there are still presumptions about me as a as a person of color or as a, a person um, who speaks another language or the person who's coming from a, uh, a low socioeconomic background. There's there there there's you know there are low expectations about about what my child can do just like there were low expectations about what I could do. And so to to say that really 
is is a, is an indictment on 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 our school system. And so we knew that the only way we were going to kind of interrupt this paradigm, because the other thing too, if I can, if I'm going to kind of bring it back to the actual school setting I was at, I was in, I was running an alternative high school inside of a traditional high school. So that was, that can work, but it is often problematic because one of the things that it becomes is your alternative program becomes a dumping ground for any students that the traditional high school doesn't want to deal with. And that's just, that is, that, that, that's, that's just a bad idea. Right. That's that's demeaning. That's basically saying these kids don't matter to us anymore. You know, and so it's sending all these messages and we had to undo and interrupt all of that. And, I th and, and so we did it with the parents. We did it by just um, inviting parents in low stakes. You know, we just need to get to know you. We know that your experience in schools has been horrible and we don't want to repeat that. So we just need to get to know you. So we would. You know, like in the summer, we would have barbecues at the school and invite the kids and their parents um, and just 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 talk, just hang out, just play music, play some play some um, table tennis or something like that. You know, just get to know people as people. And then you un and then over time, you get to learn about certain family dynamics that occur in, in families because, fam you know, everyone is not coming from a nuclear family. You know, there are lots of family dynamics. There are intergenerational families. You have to learn all of those things. And then you start to learn about um, where the where the where the centers of support and where the strengths are in that family and that home community. You start to learn, especially when you're dealing with children that 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 can be really challenging because because um, because they're struggling academically or because they're struggling um, psychologically or emotionally or just because school has not been good to them and so they don't they no longer have an investment in it as a as a place where they belong. Whatever the reason is. You start to learn who are the important adults in those kids, in those young people's lives. Um, what, where, what are the aspirations that they have? Um, what are their goals, independent of school? You know, what do they want out of life? And you need all of that in order for this child who has a rap sheet from a folder, right, from all the places they came to, went to before they came to you, right? You, if you don't know all those other things what you will know about that child will be what they present to you in the moment, right? Without any consideration for how they got there and what that file will say about that child. And neither one of those things is going to be flattering. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> so yeah. I just think that it's, that's it's building that relationship. Right. Mm -hmm, and I think mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as, as a system and educators, we don't take time to invest in those relationships. Yes, I get it. There are constraints, right? But I think this is a, a piece that, you know, Dr. Mapp uh, at Harvard, mm -hmm, uh, is mm -hmm. my, my mentor, she talks about school and community partnerships, right? And Absolutely. family community partnerships. And I think this is an area that we really need to tap into. We really need to invest in if we want to see those shifts structurally and mindset based uh, shifts. Because to your point, when we see a folder or a rap sheet and we see a child who maybe doesn't present the best sons, their best self all the time, that's the the bias and we're going to put that bias forward but mm -hmm, if we're getting mm -hmm. to know their whole family their community if we if we're putting our teacher hat down our administrator hat down mm -hmm. and just talking to people heart to heart then we're going to really understand Absolutely. who they are you know yep. if, if we haven't gotten there on our own mm -hmm. and i'll just i'll just also shout out uh dr karen map because um i i we use her work i've used her work in 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 helping staff realize the value of the, the that time and investment 
right? Because the other constraint, and this is again, the systemic thing, the other constraint is, well, these kids are already behind and the school year is only so long and the scope and sequence for the, the curricular unit says we got to cover A, B, and C by X week. And so we don't have time for all this relationship building stuff, <laughs> right? Also, there's a very real thing that there are some educators, unfortunately, because of some of the biases and things that they've internalized that we spoke to earlier, who, who, who may be uncomfortable or even afraid of, of, of establishing those relationships with the kids or their families. There are others who aren't, but there are some who are. And, and so, you know, we have to also help them begin to shed those assumptions about students as well. But it, it, it has to start with learning the community, knowing who they are, knowing their strengths, and also knowing what they want, right? How often do schools and school leaders ask uh, caregivers, what do they want for their child's education, right? The school already is going to shove a, a, a bunch of stand curriculum standards sure. in front of them, right? But why aren't we asking the family and the community, what do, what do you want? I mean, that's, right? I mean, people are going to defer because of people's relationship with education and educators. They're going to defer to much of what schools want and say and do. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean we ignore or, or exclude or don't make space to to center what the community's needs and wants are. Um, right. So, and they're untapped resources, right? Yes. 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 But I think we're afraid. I think folks, not we, but I think the system is afraid to ask because mm-hmm. they like the status quo, right? They like that control. And as we, we said mm-hmm. before, there's still a fear of that liberatory freedom yes. that education yeah. brings, right? And I think there's there's been this awakening, as, as we've talked about, this exposure mm-hmm that social media has brought, that the murder of George Floyd has brought, mm-hmm. that COVID has brought, that, um, you know, anti-Asian hate uh, in our face has brought, that, yeah. you know, um, the the uh, horrorful, uh, you know, enlightenment here in Canada, and I'm sure in the U.S., we knew residential schools existed, but the unmarked graves, you know, know, thousands and thousands of children Right. In unmarked right. graves. We know all this and it, it's it's as though they want this to be kept in Pandora's box. You know what I mean? Of course. Because what would we do? And, you know, speaking about this transformation and you've given so many ideas of the barriers and things we need to do to shift this. And one of the key elements, I think, is building these family community uh, partnerships and engagement. But you know, in your role and your experience as the Boston director for Escolta School of Research and Design, can you share with us your experiences in engaging with culturally sustaining school transformation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, perhaps like, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. What were you and I was going to say, and maybe what the first steps would be uh, for right. educators of color who want to work towards this in this equitable and inclusive school environment. Mm-hmm. So, so in my work with Escolta, we are, um, so Escolta uses improvement science and an and and improvement science approach. Um, it uses design thinking to, to, to it, it uses that as a frame for school improvement or school transformation. Um, so we at Escolta are making the case for the need for it to be culturally sustaining and culturally grounded. Now, I will also say that that, um, just as we were talking about, there's been this awakening um, that has also been the case of the organization I'm a part of. Um, there were much that we we are we are trying to be more intentional about walking the talk than Escolta had been in the past, quite honestly. And so, um, so so we're still folks 
depend, you know, depending on people' proficiency in anti-racism tells you the degree to which that might be central to their work with schools. But I am very comfortable and familiar with it, having been a, a teacher and a school leader, and it's it's and having basically my entire professional career is as an educator has been focused on liberation. I mean, I started as an educator. I was in college um, and I was in the Black Student Union and I wanted to be active. And so I grabbed, we, me and some friends got some Black kids from the projects across the street, the housing, the public housing across the street from the college, brought them on campus because they'd never been on the campus before and started doing homework help and uh, and then teaching them Black history and then taking them to museum. So from the very beginning, my lens and view of, how, of what education is for is about liberation. So that's not everybody's perspective, <laughs> right? So, so that's, that's, that's a big part of it. So I think that um, you, you have to recognize, I mean, even if it's like, okay, well, you're going to study the, his, the, the educational experiences of Black, Indigenous, uh, Latino, and Asian people in the United States. So you can see that for all of those communities, education was 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 about liberation. You know, I mean, you might argue that for some groups it was citizenship and full inclusion, right? But particularly for Black and Indigenous people, it has always been about liberation. And so I think that that has to be what is the understood frame of anybody going into a school to do any kind of work. And so... That means that if we're working with a school team and they're doing, say, interdisciplinary unit design, then we're asking the questions like, where, where are the spaces for student voice? Where are the spaces in your instructional experience for them to understand and address problems in their community? Where are the spaces in your, in your instructional experience? Because some of our schools, their change idea is, is centered on instructional changes. Um, and so we don't just want fancy lessons. We want lessons that are empowering students, lifting their culture, addressing community concerns, and making connections to the world that they have to inherit because they're going to come out and deal with it, right? And so they, we're supposed to be preparing them for it. So, so that, those, are the, those have to be the purposes of education to create um, um, change. And, and that's, that's more than just, I know how to read, write, and compute at an age appropriate level, right? It's, so it's so much more than that. So I think that, that, that educators of color have to think that way. And I think the other thing too is this work in isolation is, is, can be dangerous. We're, we're, we're challenging a status quo and much of my personal experience in education has been navigating the, the pushback and the reactions and the, and the punitive consequences for taking this disposition on education as liberation. Um, my dissertation is about how, how I navigated being a leader who was told to enact social justice, but was then punished for doing so. Um, so, you know, we have to, we have to, we, so we have to be brave and we have to recognize, and, and, but we also gotta be smart, right? So we have to take care of ourselves. We have to form um, um, collaborations with other like-minded educators both of your of your own cultural community, but across cultural communities, right? Um, and 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 we have to we have to. 
I guess I think too, we have to lean into the protest traditions that all of our communities have, right? Protest traditions imagined a future that wasn't in front of them. Not only did they do that, but they recognized that I am doing this work and engaging in this and taking some risks that I might not necessarily benefit from, but I know it's going to create the terrain or the momentum for future benefits, right? So I think it requires us to to think like that. It requires us to 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 be justice warriors, right? Mm-hmm. And, and 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 that's real. Like it's not just slogans. Because if you're really engaged in this work, you will you will feel the consequences in the way justice warriors in other domains have experienced the re, the, the reaction or the response. So, Absolutely, so, and building that community around you, right, to mm-hmm. hold you in that yes. because. We can't yeah. do this alone. And I was I was on a panel actually today where we were talking about how we, we cultivate this work and then we need the allies and the accomplices to also be by our side there. Yes. Those are the moments, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, so when there. I was at my lowest points, I, I that's when I came to realize, hey, you need to lean on, you know, your 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 support group at home, your, you know, your significant other, your colleagues. I I, I was um a principal in the district with two other black men, and we kind of were a support group for each other. Um, my my spiritual support group, like relying on my faith community. And what was interesting about when I was a principal um, in 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 the in the um, where I, the school that I write about in Cambridge, actually, the school that I write about in in the dissertation, is that many of my students um, were were um, were East African Muslim students. So. That was able to like so so on the one layer there was this connection across you know race and 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 like our religion, but also it meant that when I would go to the mosque, I would see their fathers and uncles, right? And so that became a support. And people would say, "Hey, you know, Mr. Sharif, we know that because some at the end it got really public what was happening at my school, and it was clear that I was being pushed out the door." Um, so that was a, a source of, 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 of support. People who were like, we know you are fighting for our children and we really appreciate that and we're behind you. You know, so that those things matter. Those things are what we've historically relied on to fight the fight. Um, and so, again, that brings you back to the community, right? Because if I don't have a relationship with those parents, they don't know who I am in the mosque or in the supermarket, right? If they haven't seen me advocate for their kids, they have no interest in looking out for me when I'm struggling, you know, and dealing with 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 forces that want to silence this very important work, right? So that's that is the testament to their community to the need for community. Absolutely, you're really like motivating me to like start doing some work and get out there. It's very motivating, and we've talked in this whole conversation really about the work that's needed to unlearn. So I'm thinking the last question I have for you is, in all of your experiences, if you can highlight, what are the greatest lessons for unlearning school leadership to support student success and community partnerships? Yeah, thank you. I, I, so if I reflect on my own leadership preparation experience, um, it was very little of what we talk about today almost no, as a matter of fact, um, in the whole program, I remember we had one session on what they were calling multiculturalism and diversity. So this was before we were even talking about, you know, in any real way, equity, anti-racism, abolitionism, we weren't talking any of that stuff back then. Um, we, 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 hadn't, we hadn't gotten to that point. 
But um, but my my leadership um, thing was very much informed by the accountability movement uh, um, that had taken over the um, in, you know beginning in the '90s. Just this notion that the accountability measures that are that are, are the way to determine success, and 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 cohorts of students measured against white middle class students are is the is the pinnacle of success, and aligned with that was the development of this business model of education right so education as a corporation and 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 the and the school leader as like the ceo oh, that doesn't uh, that that that's a very removed and sterile and anti community approach to leadership and so but that was that was the trend that was the big thing you know that was what followed the notion of educators as managers was that whole thing and so that has that that definitely we have to learn a different vision for education and so i would say that that's that's one of the key things that i would say are a lesson that has to be unlearned those ideas and they're not gone because they still exist in some school spaces and many of our charter school networks continue to promote that though they are trying to <laughs> reconcile it with the fact that they are um they are perpetuating some of the very things that they were originally supposed to be dismantling as, as, as a choice option for communities. Um, so we've got to unlearn those notions of school. We need to get back to the notion of school ed educators and school leaders as community, as community leaders, as community participants. Um, so that, that to me is, is huge. And like I said earlier, we've got to, we've got to um, unlearn the benign notion of the educational space and see it for what it is. It's a space that reproduces a society and where power um, is, is, is contested. And, and, and our job in those spaces, if we're truly about liberation, is, is, is to resist that and to contest that on behalf of the children and young people that schools have, you know, schools have disserved. I think there's just so much there. And I think the, the key messages I'm getting are really to question and reflect on what we know, what we don't know, and what are our possibilities mm -hmm. to learn and to really focus on community and to really step back and reflect on who is in front of our class. And I know we do, right. we're taught this in teachers college as well, right? Focus less on the content, who's that person there in mm -hmm. our in our class. Right. I think that's key, but at the same time to reflect and acknowledge, and even myself as a uh, you know South Asian person with light skin privilege, to really unpack our identities and think about where we fall in in this system and structure of white supremacy and how we can disrupt it in our everyday, not just in a PD, not just in a one right. aspect or one listen, but how we can just dismantle that, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think you've really shared some some great knowledge, so. I want to pass the mic back to you if there's anything that you want to share with folks before we wrap up that you didn't have a chance to to share and, and pass that mic back to you and yeah. then we'll close out for the evening. All right. I think, yeah, so one thing I do want to highlight is um, young people are brilliant and we constantly overlook that fact, right? And I think that part of what we're supposed to, and it's kind of what I was alluding to earlier about um, um, the dominant culture recognizes that they're, or at least treats their children as if they're brilliant and prepares their educational spaces to receive them as such, right? We have got to insist 
on that for our children in our educational spaces or in spaces where our children inhabit. We have got to insist on that. And that starts with um, that starts with with us protecting their their protecting them as human beings, but protecting their right to be. Right. So young people have a right to express themselves like <laughs> this. What's so funny? I was in an education conference and it was a, a, a circle of a bunch of educators. We were sitting there and they were just going on and on and on about, oh, my God, the young people, they're doing these TikTok challenges where they're slapping a teacher and they're 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 doing. You know, they were just talking about all the all the the aggressive behaviors and the violence and and they're and they're engaged in, in 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 increased drug use and vaping and after about 40 minutes of just pulling their hair out and wrangling i was like have you seen adults lately i mean like are we not watching adults beat each other up on airplanes because somebody doesn't want to wear a mask or people just being allowed to just vent hatred in the social media politicians get to just demean people of color like it's nothing, right? Like, why are we holding young people to a standard that we as adults aren't meeting, right? And so I'm like, it's it's ludicrous. So true, and so true. why don't we get out of the way and create space for young people to show us who they are and what they want and what can be different from what we're offering? Because mm-hmm. I, I think I think, and when I say, well, I'm being general when I say what we're offering. I know there are many of us who are trying to offer something better, but our society in general is not. Our societies in general are unwell. Mm-hmm. And so it's, 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 I don't know. I think it's ludicrous for us to expect that not to impact young people. Mm-hmm. It's so, that self-expression piece, right? And that self-empowerment yes, piece. Yes, Going yes. back to that liberation, because if they're all stifled and we're not, creating space for that self-expression, right. that evolvement of, of self and empowerment, then where will they take that, that creativity yeah. out? Yeah. They want to, they want, kids want to, um, like, why don't we find out, right? Like when, when these things happen, these are opportunities for us to find out what's on students' mind and what, and what they care about. Mm-hmm. Right. And instead we use these as opportunities to pathologize and problematize them. Absolutely. And then we, we as adults try to come up with some way to fix them. Mm-hmm. They don't, young people, I mean, we all need help. So I'm not going to say young people are just, they're good to go. We all need support, but yeah. they don't need the fixing. Our systems need the fixing and our, and our, and our, and us as adults, there are many of us or, or, or some of us, I don't know if it's some or many who need fixing. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. They're innovative. They, they will, if, if we listen, they mm-hmm. will give us a lot of the answers, right? And, and the right. youth are definitely the way forward. We've seen youth that have really transformed our society in the last yes. two years and yes. take leadership. Absolutely. Right. right. It is young people who forced us to reconcile with the fact that there are a lot of young people who don't want a stratified racialized society anymore, right? The one thing that the, 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 the shocker in the United States with the George Floyd protests was the, that it were overwhelmingly white. If you counted up all the people who protested across the United States, it was mostly white people, even though it was, it was largely led by people of color. So what that's, that signaled is, yes, there are still, like, because there were those whites in Charlottesville who were, you know, marching with their tiki torches. So I'm not saying that all of the youth want change, but many of them do. And so you have to wonder, well, what's getting in the way of the change that they want? 
Well, it's the systems and the, and the thinking of the, the, the old folks. <laughs> yeah, and that permeates, like you said, into the education uh, industry, if we will, or education right. sector. Slip or not slip there. But no, thank you. I think I think that there's those key messages around mindset and around systems and structures that I'm going to take away. Mm-hmm. And I want to put it to you, if anyone would like to get in touch with you and reach you and follow your work, how can they find you, Jamal? All right. Well, I am on LinkedIn. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll put that in the show notes for sure. Yeah, but but uh, email address is jamalsharif at gmail.com. Perfect. And that's that's. Yeah, I, I need to do better, admittedly, on on the social media presence. <laughs> I'm not I'm I'm not where I need to be, but you can re- you can reach me on LinkedIn or or through my email. Wonderful, and thank you so much again for taking time out of your evening to sit with us, Jamel. It's been really really inspiring and uh, lots of pearls of wisdom that I know that our educators and school leaders and folks in general can think about. So thank you again for joining us today. Uh, please check out Jamel's work. We will post his information in the show notes. And we look forward to hearing from you again and all the great work you're doing. Thank, Thank you. you so much and have a lovely evening. Thank you so much, Shaliza. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to Curated Conversations podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, rate, and review the podcast. Subscribe and listen to past episodes at www.curated leadership.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. To learn more about curated leadership, visit us on Instagram at curated leadership.